you're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. As far as I'm concerned, plants are every bit as interesting as animals, even if they don't move as quickly. Our guest today feels the exact same way and has come on to talk about some of the incredibly interesting plants and environments that he works with. Joshua Stiles is an ecologist and science communicator from the UK. He's the founder of the Northwest Rare Plant Initiative as well as British Botany Training and I'm a huge fan of his YouTube and Twitter accounts, which are a constant source of inspiration and education. Josh, can you please help me get this episode started off by explaining what is a lesser bladderwort? Okay, yeah, sure. So lesser bladderwort is a really, really interesting plant. It's um, a member of a group of plants, the bladderworts, that are amongst the fastest on the planet. And so with with lesser bladderwort, it has these fantastic little bladder-like traps, um, which have little trigger hairs. And what happens is... An aquatic animal, say a a mosquito larva, will go past these trigger hairs and then the bladderwort trap opens in the uh, speed of of one ten thousandth of a second um, and sucks in its prey, digesting it for its its own nutriment. And and not only are the bladderworts super, super fast, but a single plant of bladderwort in, in one growing season in the UK can consume tens of thousands of animals. So that makes these bladderworts some of the most um, successful predators on the planet. Who needs a rubbish tiger or a lion? <laughs> I think they're great. And what do they tend to eat? Uh, well, in Britain, um, all, all of our bladderworts here, where, where I'm based, are aquatic. But you also get some terrestrial species. So the prey sort of depends on the species and the size of the trap. Um, some species can have really, really minute uh, bladder-like traps. And some species can have really enormous ones. So, yeah, it, it very much depends on the species, really. Okay, so you say that there are some large ones. Are you able to give us an example? Well, in Britain, um, one of the largest species we get here is is greater bladderwort, and they'll be eating things like mosquito larva. Um, But but some of the tropical species have really, really big traps, although I'm less familiar with, with some of the things we get outside the UK. So my, my specialism is, is more on, on our fantastical flora here in, in Britain, as opposed to some of the tropical stuff we get, um, if that makes sense. That's pretty cool. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the bladderworts that are growing in your area? So not only are the bladderworts super speedy and, and super successful predators, um, but unfortunately, a lot of them, at least here in Britain, again, where I'm based, are actually threatened. Um, so the, the bladderworts have, have adapted these fantastic traps because oftentimes they are adapted in really nutrient-deficient environments. And so to sort of compensate for the nutrients that are lacking in their environment, that's why they've turned to carnivory. And here where I'm based in Britain, in northwest England, there's one species, lesser bladderwort. And sadly, lesser bladderwort had gone extinct through most of northwest England and had been extinct for a really long time. So most sites had been lost over 150 years ago. 
And so what I decided to do is I decided to essentially grow on some lesser bladder work found from some of the very last sites in the region and reintroduce them to areas of restored habitat where this fantastic species had been extinct for so, so long. And so what I did with all the relevant permissions in place is there's an area uh, in Greater Manchester that was suitable for this plant once again after after such a long period. And so what I did was in 2018, I reintroduced 60 plants um, to these, these areas of suitable habitat. In 2019, there were an estimated 30,000, which is just incredible, from these 60 plants, which, which surely demonstrates that um, habitat restoration can have some really, really positive impacts in terms of the suitability for these rare plant species. And so in 2019, there were 30,000. And in 2020, the population estimate this year exceeds 200,000 plants from extinction, from extinction over 150 years ago. So they are a super interesting um, group of plants. They're super speedy. And also uh, there's a really nice conservation success story uh, around lesser bladder work to be had in, in Greater Manchester in England. So yes, there you go. <laughs> so cool. I think one thing with plants is they're very different animals obviously you'll see a an animal bounding across a field say i don't know a, a hare or or a rabbit or a kangaroo or whatever it might be and the interest and the appeal is immediately there because it's a big fluffy animal that's moving but with a plant like lesser bladderwort the interest isn't always obvious you'll look at it and you'll just see a bit of essentially sludge in a pond but then you'll find out that actually it's a ferocious predator and it's super super fast and then the appeal just grows the more you know about it. And I think that's the same with all plants. There is so much interest and appeal around all of our plant species. However, it, it just takes perhaps a bit of digging into the information surrounding these species to make them perhaps more appealing. That's the way I look at it anyway. So what are some of the other interesting plants that you work with? Oh, well, just keeping on on the train of interesting plant species. So I'm actually working with a couple more really, really interesting plants. Uh, there's, there's one plant called Marsh Club Moss, and it is really, really weird. Um, so Marsh Club Moss belongs to a group of plants called the lycopods. And the lycopods evolved more than 400 million years ago, well before the dinosaurs and animals we like to think of as ancient, like the crocodilians. They are a really ancient ancient group of plants. Um, and anyway, as well as being ancient, um, marsh club moss and the club mosses more generally are super, super weird. They essentially look like alien Christmas trees and they reproduce by spores as opposed to flowers like a lot of plants today. And not only are they weird looking and they have some ancient ancestry, but the club mosses are also used for some incredibly peculiar stuff. So club moss spores are used for things like uh, dust explosions in special effects and also in things like condom manufacture. Um, <laughs> so they're really, really crazy, really weird, really ancient. But unfortunately, a lot of them are really, really threatened as well. So our club mosses 
generally are, are, are generally they're, they're quite uncommon plants. And here in England, uh, marsh club moss is nationally scarce. So that means there's less than 100 places in the country where you can find it. And also, thanks to habitat loss, it's also an endangered species. So I'm actually working, just like the lesser bladderwort, to, to reintroduce this fantastical, ancient, groovy, ancient plant to, to some suitable habitats in the region of northwest England. Uh, so that's one, one other plant I'm working with. But there's also another really interesting plant, and it's actually a relative of lesser bladderwort. It's called common butterwort. And it's it's not actually common, despite its name. Uh, here in England, it's redless vulnerable, which is one degree below endangered. It's carnivorous, but also common butterwort is one of a few plants we get here that also carries an STI, <laughs> which I think is, is quite weird and interesting. So, so common butterwort carries a pathogenic fungus called Microbotrium pinguiculae, or butterwort smut, is the English name for this pathogenic organism. And what this fungus does is it infects the plant, and then it travels up to the sexual bits, the anthers. And then what it does is it replaces the pollen with fungal spores. And so in this manner, uh, th this pathogenic fungus is an STI. Um, and then what, once it's infected and replaced all the pollen with spores, pollinating insects will go into the flower and then take these spores and transport them to other plants. So there are, they are just another couple of, of plants that I find super, super interesting that I'm, I'm also working with in, in a conservation context. I think a lot of people would look at a fungus like that and just sort of think, oh, that's a pest. But what you're saying is that you're looking a little bit closer and you're actually seeing something beautiful. Absolutely. Smut, fungi and plant pathogens um, are a really interesting group and they tend to be demonised because they'll infect crop species and cause huge problems when it comes to crop productivity and sometimes even human health. But actually, it's really, really important to appreciate these quote-unquote pest species because a lot of them, particularly the fungi, produce chemicals uh, known as secondary metabolites um, that actually have a tremendous amount of pharmaceutical potential. And so if we are wanting to eradicate all of these species, uh, whether they have negative effects um, on plants or not, and to us or not, we might actually inadvertently be eliminating a, a, the next antibiotic or the, the next major drug. And so I think that when it comes to any organism at all, it, it's really important to have at least some degree of respect for it because you never know, it, it might it might carry the next cure for a various type of cancer or, or whatever ailment. Yeah. I mean, it's also just evolved in a, some kind of a relationship with the ecosystem. Absolutely. Yeah. So are there any examples of sort of things that people might think of as pathogens that are actually benefiting the plant that they're on? Well, there isn't actually very much study around plant pathogens as a whole, unless it comes to crops. 
and agriculture. And so they're, they're generally, they're, they're relatively understudied. But as an observation that I have had um, in, in the field, um, so there's a really interesting uh, plant pathogen that infects a plant, a, a really pretty plant called bog rosemary. And what it does is it infects the plant and causes it to produce these really big, uh, thick, pink, barbie pink stems, which contain its spores. Um, but not only does it do that, I've also observed infected plants growing more vigorously than plants that aren't infected. And so it's, yeah, it is, it's, they're relatively understudied generally, but it's very likely that plant pathogens, some species at least, also bring about some kind of benefit to host species. So yeah, that's very probable. Cool. So what can you tell us about peat bogs? So peat bogs, oh God, yeah. So so peat bogs, they, they cover about 3% of the Earth's surface. Yet despite their minimal coverage, really, um, peat bogs as a whole contain more than twice the carbon than, than is locked up in all of Earth's forests combined. They are the world's best carbon sinks. They're, they're amazing habitats as well. Um, so, so I've actually been involved um, in a lot of stuff around peat bogs, in particular plant reintroductions. And so that is one other thing I've been involved in, where I've been with, with loads of different partners and um, reintroducing key species back to these peat bogs in England, which are being restored uh, back to favourable condition. Um, and so that is something else that really, really takes my fancy and I think is also super, super important. In England, we've lost about 94% of our peat bogs, whilst degraded peatlands across the world contribute to about 10% of worldwide uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So peatland restoration um, is, is something to be really, really concerned about and um, involved in if, if possible. Peat is essentially a substance um, that is about 97% carbon. It is, it's carbon heavy and it forms in really, really damp, wet environments where oxygen is low in the, in the soil and in the environment. Um, and so because oxygen is so low, bacteria can't really get into all of the dead and decaying plant material and break it down and release that carbon into the atmosphere. Um, and so what just happens on a peat bog, essentially, is over time, this dead and decaying plant material just uh, degrades into the substance we know as peat, which, as I say, is, is really, really carbon heavy. Um, and so to get these peat bogs back into a, a reasonable condition, one critical, critical step is to re-wet them if they've been drained or dried out. Um, because that way, if you re-wet these areas, then peat can continue to form and, and plants can continue to pull carbon from the atmosphere and lock it up into peat. And so um, keeping peatlands wet is something that is, is so, so critical um, for the climate aspect of, of things. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd heard it was actually quite difficult to rehabilitate peatland after it had been damaged. Is that right? Um, it, it depends where you are in the world, really. Um, peatlands, they can differ in terms of their ecology, their plant composition, um, depending on where you are in the world. But really, where I am in, in the 
temperate zone in in England, um, oftentimes it will just be a case of sort of putting in mounds or or blocking up ditches to keep that water in. Um, Sometimes you can adopt different um, strategies. So sometimes, well, in fact, a a lot of what has happened in England, as I say, we've lost about 94% of our peat bogs. What has happened a lot of the time is that topsoil has been put on top of the peat after it's been drained and dried out so that these areas can essentially be used for agricultural purposes, for growing crops. And so sometimes what might need to happen is that agricultural soil needs to be stripped off. And then you think about re-wetting the peat so that vegetation can establish that can essentially pull in so, so much carbon from the atmosphere and lock it up in the form of peat. Yes. And is that sphagnum moss that you have there? Yes. So sphagnum is often, again, depending where you are in the world, is oftentimes a really, really uh, super important plant when it comes to peat bogs. There are loads of different sphagnum mosses, but sphagnum moss generally forms the majority of biomass when it comes to peat on a lot of our bogs here. So yes, is, is the answer to that. Really, really important plant. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the horticultural practices that are a part of your ecological work? Sure. So, sure. Okay. Um, so, so when I um, graduated from my undergraduate degree in 2017, I was, I was really, really fortunate uh, in that I was given a scholarship uh, for £2,000 and I felt like a millionaire momentarily. But after I was given the money, it took me about a week to decide what to spend it on. And one thing that always irked me as a child growing up was learning about and seeing some of our rarest plant species go extinct. And so what I decided to do with that £2,000 in 2017 was begin something called the Northwest Rare Plants Initiative, whereby uh, I uh, essentially took about 40 target species that are really super, super threatened in the northwest of England. And my goal there was essentially to grow on these target species and reintroduce them at suitable sites in the region so that these plants are not threatened or not as threatened anymore. And so that their future um, in my region in northwest England is secure. And so that's something that that I still do today. In fact, I've, I've just completed my 45th reintroduction program um, involving some really, really rare plant species. So that's a little about me and what I do. Okay, that's interesting. So how do you harvest the plants? Do you take cuttings or...? Oh, well, it, it depends on the species, really. Um, so, for example, there's a wonderful endangered carnivore called Great Sunju. Um, and great sundew, at least in northwest England, only tends to grow in really, really small populations. And so, of course, if I was to dig up any plants there, uh, or even take seeds from from these really, really tiny remnant populations, um, then that might have a detrimental impact upon those very last populations that we've got left. And so what I did there was, yes, I I took some cuttings. I took some leaf cuttings uh, from a few plants left in the region. And from those cuttings, I now have well over 100 plants and um, I've reintroduced about 60 across 
across the region, 60 plants across a few different populations. And then there are other species too, where you'll might want to dig up the plant, a plant or, or a few plants, or take some seeds. But it really, really depends on the plant itself and it, the individual ecology of that species. As some species that I work with are actually legally protected as well. And so one thing I have had to do for one really rare plant called June wormwood, there are four plants left for the whole of Great Britain. Um, so one, one thing I had to do there was actually get a license to allow me to take some cuttings from this incredibly rare June wormwood um, to grow on in cultivation. So it, it depends is the answer. <laughs> right. So it sort of depends on the species. Yeah. So as I say, each plant has um, sometimes really, really different ecology to the next. Um, for example, great sundew that I mentioned, this, this endangered carnivore, it likes really, really wet, uh, peaty soils. Whereas dune wormwood um, that I mentioned is a plant of really quite dry sand dune habitats. And so these different Re ecological requirements uh, mandates sort of a different strategy when it comes to growing them and, and different sort of setups that you establish for them. And Josh, I don't think that you're actually saying that it's okay to just go and take a plant sample from wherever you feel like it, are you? Yeah. So, so I mean, I, I, I'm talking about some of the reintroductions that I've been involved in, but really, al although I, I still consider myself young, um, I, I've been doing this for, for well over 15 odd years. And there are loads of guidelines that you, you have to follow. Um, so for the conservation work that I do and, and even the cultivation aspect of things, um, I always adhere to the IUCN translocation um, guidelines that are available. And so there is a really detailed procedure when it comes to cultivation. Loads of things have to be considered, including things like biosecurity. If you've dug up a plant from a site that also has invasive species, the last thing you want to do is to be whacking that somewhere else and transferring the invasive species with it. Uh, and so what I'll have to do there is if I'm taking a plant out of the ground with soil, I'll keep it in cultivation for between six months and a year just to make sure there are no uh, baddies that are growing with it. Uh, and so, yeah, th there are loads of guidelines that you have to follow. And it's, it's certainly not as simple as just um, collecting seed or material from a really, really rare plant, uh, growing them and just sticking them somewhere else. Um, that there's a lot of thought and consideration that has to go into it, which is true for any reintroduction. So maybe it's a little bit more complicated than what people might think. If there are some of our listeners out there right now who are sort of listening and looking to do some conservation work of their own, where would you send them? If people want to become involved in plant conservation, um, but perhaps they might not know very much about plants or, or plant conservation or the right processing processes and guidelines to follow. Perhaps one thing that, that everyone can do is, is support their local conservation organisations. So over here in England, we have people like um, the Wildlife Trusts who are doing an incredible amount uh, for some of our rarest wildlife, including plants. And, and so one thing that I found has is, is improved my knowledge and skills base incredibly 
way, it is helping out these organizations, volunteering for them. And so that's something that anybody and everybody can do. Um, if, if people want to help and, and learn more about our, our threatened plant species. Yeah, that's some great advice. So is there anything else that you'd like to let the listeners know about before we wrap up this episode? I think as a finishing remark, I would just say to anybody listening that, I don't know, the, the, the key thing that I really want to get across to people in general is that plants are not static organisms. They're, they're just as vivacious as any vertebrate, any koala, any lion, any tiger. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, just, I just absolutely love plants and I don't see how anyone can't. It's, um, they're, they're such an incredible group of organisms that, of course, they're, they're fundamental to, they're the fundamental basis of almost all life on Earth. Um, they, they play such a vital role um, in human health as well. About 40% of our pharmaceuticals in the West, anyway, come from plants. They're plant-derived. And estimates suggest as well, just on the topic of pharmaceuticals, that we're losing a major drug every two years attributed to global plant extinctions. And so we need to have an appreciation of plants. And we need to realise that they need our help about two in five of the world's uh, plant species are threatened with extinction. Um, and so plants are really, really important. Yeah. Thank you so much, Josh. <laughs> Super duper. All right, Daniel. Well, thank you very much for having me. Amazing. If you'd like to hear more from Josh, and I don't blame you, there's a link to his YouTube profile where you can learn more about subjects like sexually transmittable plant diseases in the show notes. There's also a link to his Twitter account, at JoshuaL951, and I definitely recommend you follow him to get an insight into ecological topics that are being discussed in the UK right now. It can be tricky to find the show notes depending on the podcast app you're using, but if you go to plantsgrowhere.com and click on the podcast tab in the home menu, you'll be able to see them by hovering your mouse over the player and clicking the information eye. If this is the first time you're hearing the Plants Grow Here podcast, welcome! I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I encourage you to stick around and go through our back catalogue of episodes for more plant-related goodness. If you're a return listener, on behalf of Ben and myself, I want to thank you and say welcome back. <laughs>